You may be seated. If you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Today we start a new chapter. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. But we won't begin our reading there because we want, I want you to have a little more context for um, uh, you know, what, Paul, uh, what Paul's argument is, what, what Scripture is saying. So we're going to begin reading at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. This is the text we uh, looked at last week. Of course, if you've been here the whole time, you know that Paul's been uh, making, he's indicted all of humanity, and he focused on the Gentiles, and then he focused um, on the covenant community, which was largely made of Jews at the time, and, um, and then he turned a corner, and he uh, began to get more specifically into the righteousness that God provides to each of us uh, through faith in Christ, so providing us with Christ's righteousness. So we're going to pick up there and we'll be reminded again and then see how um, Paul's argument continues to move through this letter. So beginning at Romans chapter 3, verse 21, I would remind you that this is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works." Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven 
and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. And yet, Lord, we would come before you and confess to you our need Sometimes when we read your word, um, it is and can be confusing. And Lord, you know too that we have distracted hearts. We um, are thinking about yesterday and last week, even even today and and next week. Um, Lord, we do pray that you would help us this morning uh, to listen carefully, uh, to listen for your voice, to listen to what you are saying to us. Lord, we um, want to be changed, that we would glorify you in our lives. Uh, We want to worship you, Lord. We'd ask that you would be doing a work in our hearts and that you would hear our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. In the uh, 12th century, uh, the wealthy maritime republic of Pisa began turning its cathedral square into a magnificent work. That was uh, their hope. Uh, Workers embellished and enlarged the existing church, and then they added a massive dome uh, baptistry to the plaza, and then uh, construction began on a bell tower, and they wanted this thing to be uh, magnificent, Construction on this tower occurred in three stages over 200 years, and in the end, it was uh, eight stories and nearly 200 feet tall. Uh, But there was one problem. Uh, The engineers and architects of the time were masters, absolute masters of their craft, but for all of their engineering knowledge, they knew far less about the ground uh, that they stood on. Uh, Pisa's name comes from the Greek word which which means marshy land, which perfectly describes the clay and mud and uh, the wet sand below that city's surface. Uh, By now, you've probably figured out that I'm talking about the leaning tower of uh, Pisa. It's known for its nearly uh, four-degree lean, um, which is a result of its unstable foundation. In 1990, the Italian uh, government enlisted top engineers to try to 
uh, stabilize this tower. And that's because it was projected that the tower would topple over if it reached 5.44 degrees. And when they checked it, it was already leaning at uh, 5.5 degrees. Um, they, they didn't know how the tower hadn't already uh, fallen over. It had reached a point um, where if it, if it wasn't fixed, it would indeed fall over uh, to its destruction. You see, a foundation serves as the fundamental support upon which an entire structure is built. It provides stability and strength and durability. In the context of obtaining righteousness, our foundation highlights the fundamental basis upon which our relationship with God and our pursuit of righteousness is established. Our passage says that righteousness is obtained by faith, not by works. You can see that clearly if you look at verses 3 and verses 5. So he's um, talking about faith. What, What does a faith look like? How is righteousness obtained? Is righteousness obtained by works or faith? What's the foundation for a life that is pleasing to God? As we delve into Uh, the search for the foundation of a life that is pleasing to God. We're going to start by turning our attention to the exemplary faith of Abraham and the profound significance it holds in understanding righteousness by faith. We're going to begin with our first heading, Faith's Foundation, Abraham's Exemplary Faith. Faith's Foundation, Abraham's Exemplary Faith. As Romans begins, Paul confronts humanity's universal problem of sin, and he emphasizes our need for God's righteousness. He states that everyone, regardless of their moral or religious background, has failed to meet God's perfect standard. Paul also emphasizes the futility of relying on personal works or achievements for righteousness. And he concludes this previous section of the letter by stating that all individuals are guilty before God's righteous judgment. And he emphasizes that no one can be justified in the sight of God through works of the law, as the law only brings, it only brings knowledge of sin. Scripture says that we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it says that righteousness isn't attained by our works, but through faith in Jesus. And Paul begins this new section by raising a question about Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people. He asks, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And this question sets the stage for Paul's exploration of Abraham's righteousness and its implications for us, his readers. A a common Jewish misunderstanding uh, 
was that God viewed Abraham as righteous because of his works. For instance, one ancient Jewish source says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. This was written about 100 years or so before Paul is writing. And there are other examples of this same kind of mentality that was among um, the people of God at the time. Paul argues against this idea. In verse 2, he writes, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And then, and then Paul, he, he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's point is that righteousness is obtained through faith in God's promises rather than through human effort or works. It's important to remember Abraham's story. God God called Abraham to leave his home country, and he promised to show Abraham a new land, and he promised that he was going to bless him greatly, and he did just that he gave him many servants, tons of cattle. He, he blessed him so abundantly. But when we find Abraham in Genesis 15, he is discouraged. He's really discouraged. And that's because Abraham and his wife couldn't have children. And God spoke to Abraham in a vision. He said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham was still disheartened. He replied, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You have given me no offspring. And it's at this point that the promise of the Lord came to him. He said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then the Lord, he brought Abraham outside and he told him to look up at the sky. And he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified. God credited him with righteousness. You'll notice the various forms of that word count in your text. It appears five times in verses three through eight. And that is an accounting term. It carries the idea of crediting someone's account. God credited righteousness to Abraham's account because of faith, not because of works. He credited him with a righteousness that he did not have and that he did not own. In verses 4 and 5, Paul drives home his point. He writes, 
Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, if a a person relies on their works or efforts to earn righteousness, it would no longer be a gift, but something that is owed to them as their due wages. In other words, if justification were based on works, it would be a transaction where a person earns what they deserved based on their own merit. But scripture says that the one who doesn't work, but instead believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, has their faith counted as righteousness. The point here is that righteousness isn't earned through works, but rather received as a gift through faith in God. It's not something that can be achieved or deserved by human effort or merit, but rather it is granted by God's grace. And there's one additional aspect of Abraham's faith I'd like us to consider. Abraham and Sarah were promised a son by God when they were quite advanced and aged. And Sarah remained barren for many years, and they eventually took matters into their own hands, with Abraham fathering a child named Ishmael through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. It wasn't until many years later that Isaac, the promised son, was born. You see, there's a significant gap of approximately 25 years between the initial promise of a son and the birth of Isaac. You see, despite being known as the father of faith, Abraham's faith had moments of doubt and impatience. Even people with great faith struggle. Be encouraged by that. Even people with great faith struggle. It's so important to wait on God's timing. Despite the seeming impossibility, Abraham trusted in God's promise and he saw it fulfilled. And this encourages us to trust in God's faithfulness even when his promises seem delayed. Abraham's life exemplifies walking in faith. His life teaches us to persevere in faith despite our challenges. It reminds us to trust God's promises. Listen, to be patient. And to obediently walk in faith, knowing that God is faithful and works everything out in his perfect timing. He works it all out in his perfect timing. Paul says that Abraham was reckoned as righteous by faith apart from works. And then shifting our focus to another biblical figure, King David, we discover how his life testifies to the fruitfulness of faith 
and to the imputation of righteousness apart from works. We see faith's fruit, David's testimony of righteousness. That's our second heading. Faith's fruit, David's testimony of righteousness. You'll see that next Paul cites David's testimony from Psalm 32 as evidence that David's salvation was indeed by faith alone. David fell, fell far short of God's perfect standard. I mean, far, far short. And David, David was well aware of it. So Paul highlights his testimony and how David speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness to apart from works. Consider verses six through eight. Just as David also speaks of the blessing to the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you remember David's testimony? Do you remember David's sin with Bathsheba and his attempts to cover it up? David, who reigned as king over Israel, caught sight of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, while she was bathing on a rooftop. Oh, he should have followed the example of Joseph. He should have fled. But instead, he stayed and he was consumed by his desire. And David sent messengers to bring Bathsheba to him, and he committed adultery with her while her husband was away serving in David's army. And after learning that Bathsheba was pregnant as a result of their encounter, David sought to conceal his sin. David became desperate to conceal his transgression. So he summoned Uriah back from the battlefield, hoping that Uriah would have relations with his wife and thus provide a plausible explanation for her pregnancy. But Uriah displayed unwavering loyalty to his fellow soldiers. He refused to go home while his comrades were still engaged in war. This left David frustrated. What was he supposed to do? So he, de- he devised a plan to ensure Uriah's death. He ordered Joab, the commander of his army, to place Uriah in a position of danger during the battle where he would likely be killed. And Joab followed David's instructions and Uriah lost his life in the ensuing fighting. David broke three of the Ten Commandments outright. He coveted Bathsheba. He committed adultery, and he murdered Uriah. And then what happened? God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sins. 
This is why in Psalm 51, we see David throw himself on the mercy of God. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David expresses deep remorse and repentance, acknowledging the enormity of his sins. He pleads for God's forgiveness and mercy and cleansing. David recognizes that his sins are not merely actions that have harmed others, but they're offenses against God himself. And he acknowledges that only God can cleanse him from his sins. Psalm 51 demonstrates the power of God's mercy and forgiveness when we come to him in genuine repentance, acknowledging our sins and throwing ourselves, casting ourselves on his mercy. It illustrates the depth of God's love and willingness to forgive even the gravest offenses when we approach him with a contrite heart. This teaches that God's grace and forgiveness is extended to anyone, to anyone, to anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. The offer of God's forgiveness and mercy extends to all who believe, regardless of their past, regardless of the magnitude of their sins. That's why in Psalm 32, David says that people to whom God credits righteousness apart from their works are blessed. The word word blessed, it, it carries the meaning of being happy or deeply content. It reflects the deep spiritual joy and peace and relief that comes from receiving forgiveness and not having your sins counted against you by God. The key point David makes is that people who are blessed have not earned this blessing, but have received it. It's a gift to have your sins covered. God doesn't hold our sins against us. God's gift of forgiveness should leave us beside ourselves with joy. Believers should respond to this gift of having their sins covered with a heart that is filled with gratitude, that's filled with humility and repentance and worship and a desire to share this good news with others. And they should strive to live in a manner that reflects the magnitude of of God's grace and brings glory to his name. And you'll notice that David's psalm also emphasizes the the pardon element of justification. A pardon is an act of forgiving or excusing someone for an offense. 
and, and freeing them from the associated consequences uh, or punishment of that offense. It involves releasing the person from guilt or any legal ramifications. In verse eight, David says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Up to this point in Romans, the, the dominant idea has been having the righteousness of God credited to us. But here the focus is on our need to get unrighteousness off of us, to remove our sin. In justification, both are essential. Unrighteousness gets removed and righteousness is received. Believer, you are forgiven and covered. Your sins are not counted against you. And Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. How holy was he? How perfect was he? All of that was credited to you. It's astonishing. You didn't earn this standing before God. It's given as a gift and received by faith alone. David's testimony confirms the imputation of righteousness on the basis of faith rather than any personal merit or works. It underscores the central theme in Paul's argument that righteousness is obtained through faith and not through works. By referencing David's experience, Paul strengthens his case that justification is by faith alone. And as our text continues, he tackles issues surrounding the covenant sign of God's people, and he talks about its significance in relation to righteousness. We'll consider faith's family, inclusive blessing for all believers. That's our third heading. Faith's family, inclusive blessing for all believers. Paul addresses the issue of circumcision in Romans because it was a significant point of contention and confusion among his readers, especially when it came to matters of righteousness and inclusion in God's covenant um, as concerns becoming um, part of God's people. You see, circumcision was the initiatory rite of the Old Covenant. It was the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, and it has since been replaced by baptism. It was the sign that you are a part of God's covenant people, but the sign was only effectual for salvation if it was accompanied by saving faith. And the true is same for baptism. But Paul touched on matters concerning circumcision earlier in this letter. But he explains um, here and he clarifies his argument about righteousness by faith alone. You'll see that he raises a question of whether this blessing of righteousness is limited to the circumcised, that is, to the Jews. 
In verse 9, he asks, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And Paul answers his own question beginning at verse 10. He says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Paul wants us to think about the chronology of events in Abraham's life. Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15, as we noted earlier. But God didn't implement circumcision as a sign of the covenant with Abraham until Genesis 17. Paul wants us to acknowledge that God declared Abraham righteous some 10 or 15 years before he gave Abraham circumcision as a sign and seal of that covenant. Circumcision wasn't required for salvation. We have a Christian body. um, It's not a Christian body, a cult out there who uh, requires baptism. If you're not baptized, you can't be saved. Here, um, the Jews had that same kind of a mentality. And when I say Jews, I'm saying the church, the ancient church of old, God's covenant people of old. It's important for Paul's readers to understand that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised because it challenges the prevailing belief that righteousness is attained through adherence to the law or external rituals. By highlighting Abraham's righteousness preceding circumcision, Paul underscores that faith is the means by which one is justified before God. He wants to demonstrate that faith, not works or outward signs, is the foundation for righteousness. And Paul makes an additional point here as well. Draw your attention to verse 11. Speaking of Abraham, Paul says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul refers to Abraham as the father of all who believe. This statement signifies that Abraham holds a special role and significance for all believers, regardless regardless of their ethnic or cultural background. The concept of Abraham as the father of all who believe isn't limited to the book of Romans. It's echoed and expanded upon uh, throughout the New Testament. In Galatians 3 verses 7 through 9, Paul emphasizes this idea by stating, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Here, Paul highlights that those who have faith, both Jews and Gentiles, are counted as Abraham's spiritual descendants and are partakers of the blessings promised to him. This concept of Abraham as the father of all who believe signifies the unity and continuity of God's redemptive plan throughout history. It emphasizes that faith is the basis of righteousness and the key to belonging to God's covenant community. It also highlights the inclusive nature of God's salvation extending to all who embrace faith, regardless of their background, the enormity of their sins, or their lineage. The gospel is truly open to everyone. Paul's emphasis on Abraham as the father of all Believers, regardless of circumcision, status, or ethnic background, highlights the true essence of God's covenant. The significance of Abraham as the father of all who believe lies in the fact that he serves as a model of faith for both Jews and Gentiles. His faith becomes a unifying factor, transcending boundaries, It demonstrates that righteousness and acceptance before God is not reliant on external markers, but rather on authentic, heartfelt trust in God. This trust rooted in the understanding that salvation comes solely by grace through faith in Christ alone unifies believers and transcends barriers. When we began, I talked about uh, the leaning tower of Pisa. It's leaning because it, was, it wasn't built on a solid uh, foundation, right? And, and so it started uh, tipping to its demise. But the picture or metaphor of foundation holds great relevance in a discussion about obtaining righteousness through works or faith. A foundation serves as a fundamental support on which an entire structure is built. It provides stability, it provides strength, it provides durability. In the context of obtaining righteousness, the foundation metaphor highlights the fundamental basis upon which our relationship with God and our pursuit of righteousness are established. When we consider obtaining righteousness through works, it's akin to building a foundation on shifting sands. We may strive to perform good deeds, adhere to various moral codes, and follow religious rituals, believing that our own efforts can secure righteousness before God. However, this foundation is inherently flawed and unstable. Its works, our works, are imperfect. And no matter 
how hard we try, we will always fall short of God's perfect standard. Like building an on unstable ground, our self-righteousness is destined to crumble under the weight of our imperfections. On the other hand, obtaining righteousness through faith is akin to building on a foundation of a solid rock. Faith rooted in trust and dependence on God becomes the bedrock upon which our relationship with him is established. It acknowledges that our own efforts are insufficient and that true righteousness can only be obtained through God's grace. Faith recognizes that it's not about what we can do for God, but rather what God has done for us through Christ. Just as a sturdy foundation supports the entire structure, faith is the foundation for obtaining righteousness that provides the stability, security, and assurance we need in our relationship with God. It recognizes that our righteousness is not based on our own merits or achievements, but on the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's through faith that we receive the gift of righteousness as it's imputed to us by God. Therefore, the metaphor of foundation highlights the crucial distinction between obtaining righteousness through works, which is ultimately futile, and obtaining righteousness righteousness through faith, which is solid, unshakable, and firmly grounded in the grace of God. It reminds us that our foundation determines the strength and longevity of our pursuit of righteousness, encouraging us to build our lives on the unchanging truth that righteousness is obtained by faith alone. Amen. Let's pray. What shall we say, O Lord? Have you not said that our righteousness is as filthy rags? Lord, we're grateful for your word. It sure straightens out our thinking. And the narrative is so different than the one that we hear in the world. Lord, we are grateful for this message that you preach to us, this message of Christ and a righteousness that is given. We're thankful that you have pardoned our sin, that you took our sin, that you transferred it to Christ on the cross, and that you took his righteousness and that you accredited our account with it. Lord, what can we say? Oh Lord, we pray that you would keep our eyes on Christ that we would live in the freedom and the joy that was purchased for us by him. Make us a people of joy, O Lord. Keep our eyes on Jesus so that we don't come under condemnation, filled with sorrow and misery. O Lord, help us to preach your gospel to ourselves daily, hour by hour. Lord, we need you. We do pray that you would strengthen us and establish us, that you would help us. Lord, we'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.